Hello, everybody. Just a quick disclaimer before this week's episode. As you know, we've been recording our episodes remotely lately due to the COVID-19 pandemic, so please excuse the slight dip in audio quality. I also wanted to give a shout out to all the nurses, doctors, and medical professionals working every day to save lives. Y'all are the real heroes, and we love you. And now, here's the show. From the beautiful city of West Hollywood, we bring you Film Forward, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. Hey, welcome to Film Forward, everybody, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. I'm Nicholas Ibarra, wishing everybody a happy new year. We are Excited to get out of 2020. Just feels good. (laughs) Let's hope we can make 2021 better and brighter. But we are very excited for today's show. Two years ago, I saw a breathtaking documentary at the WGA. And since then, haven't been able to get this film out of my head. It was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. And on January 12th, it will be released as a special Criterion Collection Blu-ray. The film is Minding the Gap. And we are honored to be joined today by the film's director, Mr. Bing Liu. Bing, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I also want to congratulate you, not just on the Criterion collection of Minding the Gap, but it was recently announced, I saw the good news that you are going to be adapting On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous, which is one of my favorite books that's probably come out in the last 10 years. It's just an incredible book. You and Ocean, it's a, a match made in heaven. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, thanks for that. I was I felt the same way about that book when I first read it. It was a, a manuscript before it had been published, and it was just the most amazing thing I'd read in a long time. Mm-hmm. It was very unexpected. It was very different. Yeah, and I still, you know, have trouble describing it to people. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those books you just have to read. Absolutely, we look forward to that. Hopefully, you can come back and chat with us about that film once it's out and released. So, diving into Minding the Gap, for those who haven't seen it, tell the audience about your film, Minding the Gap. Minding the Gap is a story of two skateboarders that I knew in this Rust Belt city called Rockford, Illinois. And I go back and I sort of follow their journeys as they navigate what it means to grow up. And for one of them, he becomes a father. And so it's about him navigating his relationship with his girlfriend as they try to make ends meet and try to make the relationship work. And for the other character, the other guy, he's a little bit younger. He's getting his first job. He's saving up to get a car, really trying to find his place in the world. But for both of them, you know, it was about me trying to get at what it was that happened in their households when they were growing up that really affected you know, why it it felt so difficult for them to enter adulthood. That's sort of the film in a nutshell. There's some plot points that I don't want to spoil for those uh, who haven't seen it yet. For sure. Before we get into talking about the details of the film, I want to just talk about what it must be like for you as a fan of cinema that your film is getting a Criterion release. Walk us through what that was like finding out and also like what the process has been like in curating the disc. Have you been collaborating with them in terms of like what features go on the Criterion collection? Yeah, the Criterion collection came about partially, I think, because of the production company that I'd worked with to make Mining the Gap, Mm. this production company called Cartempquin. They've been around in Chicago since the 60s making social justice documentary work. And in the 90s, they made a film called Hoop Dreams. And Hoop Dreams was a documentary that entered the Criterion Collection after it was released. 
And so they, Kartemkin already had a relationship with Criterion. So I think it was a way in, I think, for them to pitch, hey, can we release this DVD with you? When we got the email saying that they were interested, you know, I didn't want to get my hopes up. So I was like, okay, you know, we'll see like once we actually, once I see the physical copy, that's when I'll finally believe <laughs> that we've become a Criterion film. But yeah, it, there was this amazing producer at Criterion that we worked with named Abby Lustgarden. And she kind of walked through all the steps with me in terms of like what we wanted to put on the DVD and, you know, how we wanted to approach it, you know, from everything from the artwork to the sleeve design to, you know, choosing a writer who'd be writing an essay to reflect on the film. So we ended up adding uh, a few deleted scenes, one extended scene, and did a follow-up interview with Nina and laid down a DVD commentary with Zach and Kier, the two main guys in the, in the film and myself as well. So it was cool to sort of have a reunion because yeah. we finished filming in like 2017 and then, you know, to have like a late summer 2020 reunion to reflect on the film while watching it was, was really special. That's exciting to hear. I'm excited to, to listen to the commentary. I'm glad you guys were able to get together for that. Jumping into the film, there were a lot of things that really hit me hard the first time I watched it, things that I connected to personally. First of which being, I, I, I didn't grow up with a father myself, so there were elements of that story that I related to. But there was one of the more striking moments in the film was seeing Kier as a boy, and he's uh, smashing another kid's skateboard. And it just, um, it took me back <laughs> to like this, just growing up, uh, Did you skateboard growing up? I, I didn't. I didn't. But seeing just his like raw energy, I'm not sure if it's anger, but it's just like this raw adolescent male energy that took me back to growing up and seeing that in, in myself or seeing that in some of my friends. And I had never seen that on the big screen. I had never seen it like captured in, in such a real and truthful moment. So th- it was just a moment that I never forgot. You know, it's been two years since I saw it. I just rewatched it this week. But when that scene came, I was like, whoa, it took me back again. Talk to us about revisiting some of the footage that you had filmed from you guys as kids growing up. What was it like to look back at some of those clips and some of that footage you'd made years and years before? Yeah, it was a trip down memory lane. I had all these mini DV tapes in a shoebox. And yeah, you know, I mean, part of it was just trying to get through it all. When I first was trying to do it, it was really trying to prop up the decision to put myself as a character in the film, which is a very late decision. The end of the film ends up being one of the guys leaving Rockford. The parts that are essentially my character scenes, you know, where I interview a few people in my life happened a year after that. Wow. <laughs> and so we were really trying to figure out like how to organically, you know, weave myself in the film so that those later scenes can be set up. So really when I was first looking at those mini DV tapes, you know, I, my thought was just like, can I find some element of, to characterize myself as a filmer back in the day, back in this community, you know, so that I can establish that like who I was. And then I, yeah, I started finding clips of Zach here and there. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. I'll hit capture on these too. And I didn't know Kier. You know, he was uh, a few years younger than me. But as I was getting near the end, it was like my last year living in Rockford. I was 18. I was at the skate park and I ended up filming this kid get into a fight. 
And I was watching back this footage and it ends up being that footage that you described that's in the film. It's Kier getting mad at somebody else who's bullying him and he breaks uh, the other kid's skateboard in a fit of rage. And, you know, two things. One, I was just blown away that I ended up filming Kier <laughs> uh, all those years ago before this project really, you know, began. And two, I had never seen that rage captured either. Yeah. A lot of people talk about it. A lot of people sort of like know it in their, in their bones, but the only time that I think we could actually like feel and just experience what it was like for Akir back then when he was growing up. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I said, it was relatable, but it it was, uh, it was a heartbreaking moment also. It was interesting. You said that the interviews relate to your story specifically were done a year after the fact. At what point did you realize that your story had to be an integral part in the film because it is an integral part. It kind of, it bridges the gap, if you will, pardon the pun. It bridges the gap of, of Zach's story and Kier's story. And it adds like a cohesiveness and an understanding to the, to the two of them. Yeah. I mean, the truth is there was no one moment where I realized it was just sort of, you know, having the thought in the back of my head and then doing feedback screenings, having people comment about and question about like how I found the story. And as I divulged the story of me being from this community, me being a skateboarder, me even having filmed Zach and Kier when we were younger, and then people just starting to suggest it. And then it was just me trying it, mm-hmm. trying out different ways, like voiceover, you know, card up on screen, finding things in the verite that I already had. Yeah, it was just, a pro- you know, this is a filmmaker. It's just like a process and you're sort of like finding it. Um, but especially in documentary, you just find so much of it in, in the edit. And I mean, ultimately, I the bigger question, the bigger sort of crisis that I had while making the film was how do I go about this morally and ethically? Right. It, it felt like if I could make my own story work, there seemed to be like some sort of Venn diagram crossover where, you know, you could not only like make the story and the film stronger, but also, you know, like it can become more ethical you know, the filmmaking can can become more ethical if I sort of bear my choices and bear my background to the audience. Absolutely. And the film does touch on a lot of heavy themes that are very present in, unfortunately, most communities in this country, domestic violence being one of them. Was that something that you knew was going to be a, a big subject matter in the film when you decided to embark on the documentary? Or did that just kind of like present itself the more that you dug into the stories and the people that we are following? Uh, yeah, it's something I think that follows you around, whether you like it or not. You know, the things that I think sit most unsettlingly in your stomach are the things that I think you end up telling the story of over and over and over again, you know, mm-hmm. even if you don't think you are doing that. When I initially pitched this project to Kartemkwin, it was a documentary about skateboarders' relationships with their fathers. So within that, you know, I knew I wanted to explore like unhealthy, absent relationships with fathers. But yeah, to sort of have it play out in verite, you know, that's obviously something I couldn't anticipate. But when it happened, it just, it felt like the documentary gods smiling down upon me because it was exactly what I wanted to explore. And to see it play out in real time is, that's drama. That's why I wanted to work with Cartemquin because they had made films like Hoop Dreams, which just felt so experiential, you know? Yeah. Towards the end of the film, you ask Kier what he's gotten out of the documentary. 
So if it's okay, I'd like to pose that question to you. Being a few years removed from the project now, what do you think you got out of the documentary personally? I got a lot of clarity. I got a lot of clarity about that I'm not alone in this, but also that there's there's never going to be any sort of resolution. I and everybody else has to just learn with what has happened in their life. You know, I think trauma is a very trending word and concept these days, but I think there's still this sense that it's a negative thing, but you read the literature on trauma and it's just a very human experience. It's a very animal experience. It's our way of learning how to survive and protect ourselves. And so I've learned a lot about what it means to emotionally move forward and survive and live with trauma. I don't know how it's really affected me. Sometimes people think that I've had a very therapeutic experience by doing this film. Definitively, like therapy is about having a safe space to be able to work out and talk through experiences and memories and feelings in a safe space. That's not what I was doing. You know, that's what I was giving to Zach and Kier. But, you know, I started seeing a therapist like while I was making the film. The most tangible thing is that I've I've really gotten a sense of filmmaking and storytelling. Those skill sets have been radically transformed. And a large part of that was working with my amazing editor, Josh Altman. He's just one of those people that really thinks in a very story math sort of way, or he has that ability. Right. You know, I was talking with my friend and she's a writer and she was talking about storytelling in a very gendered sense in that the feminine part of you very generative and it's just creative and it's, you know, producing things and it's a very freeing sort of free flow thing. And then the masculine is the thing that is about editing and structuring and the story math of it all. Ocean Vung talked about it as well in a yin and yang sort of sense, which, you know, yin and yang also has a feminine and masculine aspect. But yeah, I'm still very much like live in the generative sort of female space of creation. In making this film, I was very much forced to, you know, occupy the story math, the the structuring, the, for me, unenjoyable aspects of storytelling. Right. Man, I mean, the film, as you mentioned, was just, it's, it's really put together beautifully. There's one sequence in particular that kind of brought tears to my eyes. It's like a highlight crescendo the music is beautiful but where it's just like um seeing zach and kier and i think yourself it's a beautiful montage of you guys just skating skating throughout the the place where you grew up skating in skate parks and it just kind of builds and builds and builds and crescendos to when we're like brought back to reality and kier like falls off his skateboard i thought that scene was so beautifully done it said a lot about the film and you guys that climactic montage was a you know, it was a solution to the problem I think many filmmakers end up having with multiple characters, which is multiple endings. Mm-hmm. And we had multiple endings for a while, you know. And I rented an Airbnb in Venice where Josh lives, and we edited on, a, on the kitchen table there. We had two laptops, and we just edited side by side. We had worked on a online whiteboard. It's called Miro now. And we'd build the film on there, split it up into reels. We'd each take a section and consult with with each other if we needed to about a specific scene or whatever. We'd stitch it together, watch it down, and then go out for a beer or go surfing and then talk about the film. 
And then from that conversation, we'd rebuild the online whiteboard, the Miro board. But yeah, that ending was always sort of just kind of kept dragging on and it was like too many beats. And then Josh got high one night and watched Bloodline. And there was an episode where they did an intercut. Right. And he called me and he was like, what if, what if we try intercutting? And so I did a first pass that night. He came over the next morning and we watched it down and it was like, okay, some version of this is going to work. And those, uh, what I call like boys to men, sort of quick cut montages of like, you know, all the characters growing up over time, reprisal of the shots. At first, it was just trying to find a way to go from that climactic montage to the last scene, which is just Kier moving out, mm-hmm. packing up his car and moving out and saying bye to his mom. It went from, you know, the climactic montage, which was summer, and then it went to winter. So really, we just needed a time transition. So I was just like, why, why don't I just try cutting like a quick little <laughs> thing of Kier, like growing up over time, if this is really sort of leading into the last scene. And then Josh sent it to his friend, Stacy Peralta, because Josh had cut um, Bones Brigade for Stacy. And Stacy saw that little segment and he was like, that little segment was beautiful. Why don't you cut a section of Zach and Bing for that too? And so that's how that came about. So as you can see, you know, like the creative process is very collaborative. It's very, you know, it's a process, it's not an event. And totally. you kind of just find it, you know, a lot of times with the help of great friends. Absolutely, man. Well, thank you for for taking the time out to discuss this, man. Everybody at home, the Criterion edition of Minding the Gap will be available January 12th. Pick yourself up a copy if you have the means. If you don't have the means, guess what? We're going to be doing a giveaway here on Film Forward. So listen during the break. We'll fill you in on all the details of how you can win a Criterion edition copy of Minding the Gap. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. When we come back, Bing is going to help us out with our favorite segment, Gimme Three. I'm making this film because I saw myself in your story. I always felt like I didn't fit in with my family. My parents ran this very controlling house. I ran away a lot. Skateboarding is more of a family than my family. Hey, hey, you've been listening to us talk about Bing Liu's unforgettable documentary, Minding the Gap which gets its Criterion Collection release on January 12th. We at Film Forward will be doing a giveaway of this incredible film, the Criterion Edition, of course, which will be complete with a bunch of really exciting special features, which we've mentioned in the podcast. There is a link in the description of this podcast that will allow you to enter. Just click that link and you are automatically entered. And through that link, you can earn more entries by completing some very simple tasks like subscribing to Film Forward, liking LADFF on Facebook, or following us on Instagram. The raffle will be open until January 25th, so sign up today. And if you have any questions, don't hesitate to reach out to us. Nicholas, N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S, at LADFF.com. Good luck, everybody. And now, Sonia's Movie Minute. Hello, I'm Sonia, and this is my Movie Minute. Today, I want to talk about Nomadland, which is a new film by Chloe Zhao starring Frances McDormand. It won the Golden Lion at the 2020 Venice Film Festival. Nomadland is about a woman named Fern whose entire town shuts down due to the local mine closing, which causes total economic collapse. Instead of trying to hold on to a life that no longer exists, she decides to live in a van and become a modern-day American nomad. What I love about Chloe Zhao's films is how personal and specific, and I guess you could say small in scope, the stories are. But yet her films 
also have a way of being about literally everything. What it means to be a human, what it means to love, what it means to be part of the universe. And you feel this intense fulfillment while you're watching them because it satiates all of your intimate and personal human needs to understand and know and love other individual people. But it also satiates your grandest universal imagination at the same time. Nomadland will be available streaming and in whatever theaters are open starting next month in February 2021. And that was my minute. Thank you for listening. My mom said that you're homeless. Is that true? No, I'm not homeless. I'm just houseless. Not the same thing, right? No. One of the things I love most about this life is that there's no final goodbye. I've met hundreds of people out here, and I don't ever say a final goodbye. Let's just say, I'll, I'll see you down the road. All right. Welcome back to Film Forward, everybody. We are joined by filmmaker Bing Liu. He is the director of the Academy Award-nominated film, Minding the Gap. And he is about to hook us up with three films that have inspired him or inspired his work. Bing, let's get your first one. First of all, Bing, was it? What, how does it feel that when I say something like that, Academy Award-nominated film, Minding the Gap? My brain just shuts off and I just like earmuffs <laughs> internally um, right. to uh, protect the awkwardness. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think like, you know, most of it comes actually from, you probably know this too, but like taking your film out in the circuit, like when people come up to you and like tell you about the film, it's like you just sort of become this static podium microphone person because right. it's really about them. It's like them sort of working out like how they just, the, the emotional experience you've given them, right, through this other thing that's outside of yourself. And so, yeah, I don't know how you or other filmmakers deal with it, but I just like kind of, I like dissociate. <laughs> uh, I've, I've, I feel the exactly the same way. <laughs> and so it's funny that I do this because I'm like, putting you guys on the spot, but yeah, no, this is different. Cause it's, you know, it's a little bit more inside baseball kind of. Yeah. Okay. So let us get your first one. Give me three. Yeah. The first one is the, is, is the film that made me want to start making things outside of skate videos. And that film is Richard Linklater's waking life. I had a friend in high school who was just kind of like that one guy that introduced me to like all the artists and musicians and filmmakers and authors that I would have been, I think, too too in the dark to have known about on my own. And he showed me Waking Life one day. I think it was at his his brother, his older brother lived in a in the back of a dog kennel, which is a whole other story. But we used to go there and like hang out and like get drunk or whatever. And one day he puts on Waking Life and I was blown away. Until then, I just, I thought of movies as entertainment. Right. And this movie really, I was 15 years old and uh, that movie really got at a what I was feeling, which was the sense of sort of like wandering around, trying to make sense of a world that didn't make sense. But also, B, uh, I really accepted myself as someone who's just like very curiosity driven. And that whole movie is about a very passive character listening to people talk at him and just sort of soaking in all this knowledge. And sometimes, if he's curious about something, I'll ask him questions. And that was who I was, and this is who I still kind of am. Like Mining the Gap really, it started as me going on skate road trips and interviewing skateboarders about yeah. the things that didn't make sense to me. 
you know, and hoping that they would have the answers. <laughs> That's pretty awesome, man. It's funny that Waking Life was the movie that made you want to be a filmmaker. It was another Linklater movie that did it for me, which was the first time I saw Dazed and Confused. I was like, whoa, you can make a movie with just like people hanging out and having a good time. Like, <laughs> okay, I might be able to do that. <laughs> yeah, Waking did you Life. Go to, did you go to high school in the 70s? No, I didn't. But I, I, I feel like, you know, it's funny getting into waking life stuff. I feel like perhaps I'm like reincarnated into like somebody who grew up in like late 60s, early 70s, because I just identify with that era so much. The politics, the the music, there's something about that era from like 65 to 75 that like even as a kid, always I was always drawn to it. What year were you born? I was born in 89. So oh, wow. Okay. I don't know why, but that era just like has always spoken to me. And like still to this day, I'm like always reading books about like Chicago in 1968 or watching movies about that era. And, you know, like my whole record collection is, is a bunch of like classic rock and classic soul. Um, How did that start? How did that fascination with that period start? That That's the thing is I don't really know. I can't put my finger on it. I guess my mom was really into classic rock, you know, like growing up, she would always like have on Zeppelin or the Stones or something. So I just kind of get like the the music and the soundtrack was kind of ingrained in me. And then, you know, maybe it was watching movies like Dazed and Confused or like watching movies about the Vietnam era, or I was really into Malcolm X also when I was in high school. So like reading his autobiography and like watching documentaries and films about him, I've been like filling in pieces of that puzzle from that time. And I think it also kind of like helps sometimes me understand today, like where we are, how we got here. What do you think of Sarkin's new film? You know, I, I thought it was pretty good. I really liked the courtroom scenes. That's his, that's his, that's his, that's his his bread bread and butter. butter. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like that, that stuff I liked. I thought the, the scenes of like the riots and the protests felt very Hollywood polished to me. They didn't having seen real footage you mean the fact from that. that they would like just stop in the middle of like a riot and like say like a one-line quip <laughs> yeah they would stop or like have a conversation or there were certain moments where i was like mm. the slow taking off of the badge just like yeah. right like yeah. off like a glove sexily or something <laughs> and the music for that scene i was like oh man is this like temp music or something like the- yeah no the real riots were gnarly <laughs> yeah really gnarly have you seen a movie called medium cool no, it's been on my list. And, you know, the filmmaker, Axel Wexler, like he is like, like he's Cartemquin, basically. Yeah. You know, yeah. Him and all those guys that were trying to do what they were doing with film back then is very inspiring. And, you know, I can see how, you know, one is drawn to that era. You know, it's like yeah. the dream of the 60s. It's like the dream of collective social action. Right. Right. Check out Medium Cool if you get a chance. It's definitely worth the watch. And it's uh, it's, it's one of my favorites. But Waking Life, it's a great choice. I I love that movie. I rewatched it this week for the first time in probably a decade. And it was like, it really blew my hair back in a way that it didn't blow my hair back when I saw it the first time. It really connected with me this time. Why didn't it blow your hair back the first time? You know, I thought some elements of it were probably just over my head. I was more fascinated with like 
the lucid dreaming aspect. And I still am rewatching it this week. I'm like, I think I need to like spend some time and try and dive into this lucid dreaming stuff because that, that was my friend who showed me the film. That was like why he showed me the film. He was really into lucid dreaming. And I was just like, wait, what about like all this other stuff? Like how like a word means different things to different people and right. you know, like the effects of yeah. Yeah. So like the first time I watched it, I was like, ooh, lucid dreaming. Cool. This time I was still like into the lucid dreaming aspect, but there was the whole other element of who we are and how the brain functions and what this world means, like all that was hitting me like a ton of bricks this time around. But and also just like interesting people. Like, yeah. that, you know, that guy like Speed Levitch, who um, Bennett Miller made a documentary on that guy. Like, right, right. Just all sorts of interesting characters in the film too. And like, if you look at behind the scenes, he sh- like shot that on like a soccer mom camera, you know? <laughs> right, just, yeah. It, it just, just felt, it yeah. And there's an accessibility to it that also felt... A very DIY 90s. Link later, man. He's uh, he's a treasure. Excellent choice. Your second pick, sir. The second pick is, yeah, the second film that I ever saw that blew me away after Waking Life was Gummo. And it was a cult film. When I was a freshman in high school, there was this older group of guys who kind of took me under their wing in this dazed and confused sort of way, almost, where I, they, they like take me to their parties and like get me high and shit. But they always talked about this film. Like, it just like when I first was meeting them, they'd all just seen it and they were like, oh my God, you know, like so disturbing. And I was like, oh God, I can't. I'm like both scared and excited to see this. Right. When I finally saw it, it wasn't what I expected. You know, I thought I was going to get disturbed, but actually what I felt was seen. What I felt like, you know, was I think what a lot of people in Rockford were feeling, which is the sense of, being left behind and crazy stuff is happening, but it's not good or bad. It's just happening and like doesn't connect with what we see in the media. But this emotionally did, you know, it's not like I watch people like whipping cats, like hanging cats up in trees and whipping them. But, you know, people did crazy stuff like that, like in basements and in backyards that, you know, I saw that were equally disturbing. And again, it just felt really accessible. It felt like they weren't forcing a story but it was just engaging the whole time. I think that that's one of the things I love most about Harmony's works is he doesn't marry himself to a traditional narrative. I think he's even said in a few interviews, like he just, that that doesn't resemble life to him. Life is not filled with moments of beginnings, middles and ends. It's moments, it's things that happen and how these people react to them. And showing a film like that, I think can have just, as strong of an emotional impact as watching a When Harry Met Sally, which, you know, makes me cry every time I watch it, but in a very different way. I haven't seen When Harry Met Sally, but uh, I always get that confused with the other one that I finally did see on a plane last year. Uh, Sleepless, Sleepless in, Seattle. in Seattle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which one is Harry Met Sally a better film? Yes. If you ask me, I suppose. Is that a hot take? I don't think so. I think I think When Harry Met Sally is like, a lot of people say, I'm not the guy who like ranks movies, but a lot of people say that it's like the best romantic comedy ever made. And wow. I I don't disagree with them. I don't agree with them either, but it's pretty damn good. There's elements of Gummo that I think like, I don't know if I would ever try to adapt any of that style. <laughs> like, right. it's just, it feels in a way like too of the moment of, that era. I imagine if I tried adapting some of that into my work, it would feel music video-ish almost. I don't know. I mean, it's just one of those films like Waking Life where it's like, 
they were so influential, but at the same time, like there's such a preciousness that I think I draw around those films that like I don't ever want to, you know, <laughs> try to totally. like reference those in my work. Sonia, my girlfriend noticed also in Minding the Gap, I think there's a scene where Kieran and his friends are watching a scene from kids. I was so amazed when that happened because that was the first time Kier was watching kids. It was the first time many of those ki- those people in that room were watching kids. And I remember my first time watching kids. And then I sort of like, you know, took that experience and crafted onto them. And so I was so excited that that was a scene where I like, I shot till like two in the morning. Cause you know, a lot of conversations were happening. They were very relevant, but just the fact that they were watching kids. I mean, there's like, this one shot, it's not in the film, but where you just sort of like see Kier reacting during the rape scene near mm-hmm. the end. And you just see him sort of like starting to realize like, wait, what, <laughs> you know, like, what's <laughs> going on? Like, do you right. guys see this right now? Uh, you know, one of those like weird, ironic, like documentary God smelling down upon you moments. Right. Gummo. It's, if you guys haven't seen it, the audience at home, check it out. It, it is worth a watch and it is it's a movie you don't forget. Like you said, I heard a lot of like, oh, it's disturbing, disturbing, disturbing. And then when I watched it, I mean, there are elements that are definitely uncomfortable, but it was far more human than the picture that was painted for me prior to seeing it. Um, yeah, there, there's, I think what it is, is, and this is like something that I think everybody has antenna for is, you know, Harmony very much approached those people that he made that movie with in a non-judgmental way. Mm-hmm. He was neither, you know, condemning or valorizing, you know, those characters and the lives they led. And that, especially for, you know, a population like the one represented in Gummo is like not, you don't really, more oftentimes you get the opposite, you, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it feels like this like top looking down sort of thing or like there's this weird valorizing thing. But yeah, it's, it's sort of rare for somebody to sort of look with such empathetic, like non-judgmental eyes yeah. you know, upon people. Which I think is a great segue into your third pick, the film Stevie, which I had never seen until this week. It is a powerful, powerful doc. Yeah, I've actually never talked to anybody about Stevie who's just seen it. Like, what were your thoughts on it? It was heartbreaking, man. I mean, it was, there were moments of it that were really uncomfortable to watch because I mean, you're just watching, there was a lot of things you could connect to Gummo as well, where it's just, it's a, it's a film about people who are in a considerable amount of pain and not really sure how to, where to put it or or how to deal with it. The repercussions are just kind of like laid out in front of you. And it's, it's stuff that we see in the world all, all the time, you know, seen in my family, but seeing it in, in the cinematic scope is, it adds a different layer. I think, but I, I thought it was a very well-made documentary. Steve James, the filmmaker of uh, Hoop Dreams, who which we've talked about as well. Yeah, that uh, movie was astounding. Hoop Dreams is shot on Betacam. Mm-hmm. Um, has that videotape look. Stevie is a verite film shot over many years on film. Yeah. <laughs> In the late 90s, early 2000s. It's astounding. You know, it harks back to Verite films made by the original Verite filmmakers, right? Like, yeah, it reminded me of like a Harlan County USA and its look. Right. But again, you know, it's another film that just has a very empathetic filmmaker's viewpoint. You don't ever feel like these people who are dealing with their pain and lashing out and perhaps hurting other people that um, are supposed to be their loved ones. You don't ever feel like those actions 
or you, you don't ever feel like those people are judged despite those actions being judged. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a masterclass in the ethics of documentary filmmaking. It really lays bare the power dynamics at play when you're making a, a documentary and something very ethically ambiguous happens. So, yeah, I think that was one of the more interesting elements of it to me was the filmmakers kind of battle with the ethics of what he was doing. He lays it down. He verbalizes it. He talks about it. He addresses it in the documentary. I, I had never seen that in a documentary. And sometimes when I'm watching documentaries, I have that in the back of my mind. Like, is this very exploitative? Like what, what is, you know, what are these filmmakers just taking advantage of these people and having a filmmaker kind of address that and talk about it and explore it was very fresh to me. Yeah. Again, like we all have antenna for that, um, whether you're a filmmaker or not, where the power sits and, you know, how much access is granted and how much buy-in or consent there is between the participant and the person making a film. Yeah. And that was, you know, Steve, was, uh, Steve James's second documentary after Hoop Dreams. You know, he could have done anything, yeah. but you know, he, he went back to the Southern Illinois town, Carbondale, outside of Carbondale, where he went to college and where he was a big brother mentor to this kid who had who had some troubles and he goes back 10 years later i think and you know discovers like who this kid is as he's become a young man and that's what the film is about similar to mining gap there's something that happens midway through that the filmmaker has to and this young man has have to confront together so and it's just interesting to see how steve dealt with that yeah, powerful film, man. And uh, all three excellent choices. Thank you for giving me those. Like I said, I'd never seen Stevie, so it's great to watch that. And it was really great to revisit Waking Life. I had been meaning to do it. And now I'm, uh, I'm about to buy a couple books on lucid dreaming. So. <laughs> And, and, and start a new podcast about lucid yeah. dreaming. <laughs> I'm sure there's a hundred of those. What is it? You got to like write your dream down immediately after waking up, right? So then, there's like, yeah, there's a whole bunch yeah. of stuff to do, you know, that I think will help the lucid dreaming. But well, thank you so much, Bing. I really appreciate you doing this, taking the time out and revisiting a movie that you made a couple years back. I know it's not always easy to to talk about <laughs> something that you've finished uh, long ago, but thank you for doing it. And, yeah. uh, and thanks for being here. And thank you all for listening to Film Forward. We're going to catch you next time and next week. Our recording engineer and mixer is Anselm Kennedy. The podcast is produced by Anselm, Sonia Maru, and yours truly. Thanks for joining us on Film Forward, and you'll hear us next time.